0: Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor.
1: And I'm Lily Rosenthal.
0: Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami.
1: We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA.
0: We're gonna invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami
1: sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, bye. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show where everything is an experiment.
0: When I talk to people who have never seen wolves in Yellowstone and they start asking questions, I oftentimes tell them that they may not realize it, but they already know a lot about wolf behavior because of their previous experience with dogs. So that's, that's why it's so easy for people to, to relate to wild wolves and to understand them because of their background with dogs in their lives. It's my obligation to bear witness to these stories and to tell us stories so that people can really understand what the lives of wild wolves are like. And my real goal in the long run is to turn around attitudes toward wolves, to turn around people that want to kill them. And I can, I'm happy to say that people have come up to me, for some reason it's always women, and have told me that they bought some extra copies of my early books and they gave it to their male friends who are anti-wolf. And I guess every time they've had a response from those men, they said that it really did change them. And that's what I'm trying to do. Change people.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Rick McIntyre. He has a new book out, which is the fourth in a series about wolves, and it's called The Alpha Female Wolf. Now I'm going to do the intro just a little bit differently. I want to set the table on some things that are important this is not kind of my customary interview where we're talking to doctors and scientists and like here's a million takeaways this was a little different and i'll explain why I wanted to do it and just also set the table on some things that I think are important and could be, if I don't explain it, maybe a little confusing as you get settled into this conversation. One, I would like to say that Rick is in a cabin in Yellowstone. The technology was not great. We have big gaps. We'll definitely try to tighten it up so you don't hear them as much, but they do exist. And also, I hope you tolerate me a little bit because there was a lot of information that I, you know, I sort of thought was interesting just for the layman, not the wolf expert. And because Rick is so passionate about these wolves and these packs and these stories, I could lose him into the story and then not be able to kind of stop and go, oh, but what about this little fact or what, you know, this little um, kind of information or detail. So a lot of times I did step on him. So forgive me, please bear with me because I had to kind of reach across to make it happen. It was just not as easy on this one. And what this is about is in 1995 they started doing a reintegration on wolves into yellowstone park and rick was brought there he had some experience with wolves in alaska and some other places and he was a naturalist and it's like hey i'm going to be your educator and and they brought him in 94 and then in 95 they started bringing the wolves and there's a whole process to get them you know integrated because you also you want them to stay in yellowstone because they're surrounded by four states where it's legal to hunt wolves and so they really did not want the wolves to migrate back north a lot of these wolves came from canada and so there's a whole process in that so they started 95 rick's there just to kind of support and he's thinking okay on these first few days i really i hope i get a glimpse of a wolf like this month and what happened was is he started seeing wolves all the time and this prompted him to kind of go you know what i'm going to pivot and re and we're going to do this differently and I'm not sure. I think it was about a 10-year period that Rick did not miss a day observing these wolves and these packs and these families. And Jane Goodall, who wrote the foreword to this book, calls him the wolf, you know, whisperer. And this is somebody who spent, you know, six to 10 hours a day, sometimes in minus 42, minus 50 degree weather, writing notes. I believe 12,000 pages of handwritten notes, and, you know hundred thousand hours of observing these creatures. And he was dedicated to this for 15 years. So this brings me to why do I want to have this conversation? Well, first off, the similarity of the dynamics between wolves and humans is astounding. I, I mean, from Rick's point of view, he doesn't think we're more similar and dynamic with any other creature. I mean, I'm sure when we see primates, there's something so similar. But as far as family and cooperation and strategy and all these things, and even the emotions, we line up so incredibly. And, and, you know, that's probably why our domestic dogs integrate into our families so well. And that was, you know, one of the reasons. And and by the way, all the proceeds to the books go to supporting the wolves. So Rick is, when, when I tell you that this is, somebody who is so passionate and pure about what they're doing Um, it's an inspiration but also there's some important stories in this in these books and characters wolves that is a real reminder to us about how we really can thrive so i want to just set the table and and sort of encourage you to have some patience with They name the wolves with numbers. They don't want people getting comfortable like, hey, there's, you know, Bobby and Sam. And they want these wolves to be, stay natural. They don't intervene. They let the packs even, you know, duke it out and fight it out, even though it's emotional and stressful for the people observing it. Um, By the way, Rick observes everything from a half a mile to a mile away. They have a few of the wolves collared. They have some other ways of really understanding what's going on with these wolves, but they really stay away. And so they, they name them like O6, the one that the Alpha Female Wolf book is about was born in 2006. So they call her 6 but there's some other characters that you're going to hear us talking about that. I just want to, at the top of the show, kind of give you a tiny little bit of, of context on who these wolves are so that when you're listening, it's not so f- so confusing and and um again have a little bit of patience and and also i will say the books have gorgeous pictures of these of each of the wolves and so you can actually connect with them visually but that's what i would try to do so some important wolves so you have 06 and this is about her and her family so she had two brothers that are partners mm-hmm yep And that was 754 and 755. So that's the family from this story. But you will hear us talk about going way back because 06 is related to a family that was made by a female, 42, and a super wolf, alpha male, 21. So 42 and 21 were one of the most successful families, wolf families Yellowstone has ever seen. Their, their pups thrived. Uh, they, they lived longer. Wolves live anywhere from five to seven and a half years in the wild. Both of these wolves live close to 10 years. Their pack flourished. In, and even like the indication of like dealing with mange and things like that. So this, this family did so well. And at the core of this family over and over you he'll Rick talk about how cooperative they were how helpful and strategic 42 is. And even though 21 was this super wolf, he never killed any of his opponents. So of course, wolves are fighting for territory and resources. And oftentimes it ends with one Alpha killing another Alpha. Well, in all of his confrontations, 21 never killed any of his opponents. So one would say, okay, if we're talking about a human, great compassion, restraint whatever whatever you want to say now another important thing to know about 21 is he was raised by a wolf that was the runt of his litter which was number 8 and number 8 displayed some of the same traits of being compassionate and and Rick had the opportunity to observe 8 and um 9 21's mother and all these other families this is this was the druid pack around 06 And in the book, they talk about the Mollies and they have this sort of war. So each area has a name, each pack is connected to a certain specific area. And so you had 21 and 42, really everybody thriving more because of the way that they took care of each other and took care of the pack and how they approached things. Now, what was interesting is 42 had a sister, 40 and she basically was a psychopath she was an alpha female i won't give away what happened to 40 but she would kill her siblings pups she uh they said that she had killed about nine other wolves so a very different approach and again why i mean i love talking to scientists and doctors and how can we help our mental health and our physical health and all of it but these books these stories these animals have so many stories and examples and reminders back to us that if we're really going to thrive as an individual and as a, as a partnership and as a collective and as a family, that it's usually from, yeah, of of course, you want to be smart and make good decisions and, you know, do some of the right things, but that being compassionate, being reasonable, being loving in the end benefits everybody that being aggressive or violent or dominant it's you know not only is there hardly a time for it but in in the long run that that just doesn't work out and you'll see in in the conversation and even for 40 it just doesn't work out and so that felt important to me I know we're going through very unusual times and it's so easy to feel reactionary and and impulsive and I think more than ever, we need to have, you know, self-restraint and love in our hearts, even when we're scared or frustrated, or we feel like someone's, you know, infringing on us. And so that was the other reason I wanted to have this conversation. I know it's not my typical one. I know that our communication was a tiny bit choppy. And we are talking about animals that like their people, but you sort of have this opportunity to hear these stories about these animals and it is really no different. And um, I just, I get inspired when I see people that are dedicated to something for the sake of being dedicated. And you know, he suffered a lot to do this, you know, he'd have nights, he'd go to sleep and he wouldn't know you know, if when he saw 17 wolves going to a den, if everybody in the den and the pups included would be dead from the opposing pack until morning. And and imagine spending hours and hours outside by yourself in the cold and, and watching these incredible creatures. So with that, I hope um, you enjoy my conversation with Rick McIntyre and I appreciate your patience and letting me kind of do something a little bit different And um, I just, as usual, appreciate you spending time with me. Enjoy. Rick McIntyre, I read your fourth book, The Alpha Female Wolf. It's your fourth book, right?
0: In, In that series, yes. I have earlier books, but you could say it's the fourth book now. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, about about the wolves, and maybe as we get started, and I, I know we're going to travel a lot of places. I would like to encourage people who are listening to this that you purposely give the wolves names of num as numbers. One being that you don't want people who were there sort of thinking of them as their friends and thinking of them as people, but sort of keeping because because you guys wanted at Yellowstone to have that distance so the wolves could live as naturally and away from people and not be adjusted to people. So I want to encourage people to sort of have patience with the numbers. And actually I got used to it. I I read um, some of your other books where, you know, sort of a lot of this starts with eight and nine and just seeing if people could change their thinking and thinking about the numbers and sort of associating it with wolves. So this this book in particular was this book the alpha female? I don't want to say it's a, was it a surprise to you? But what I'd love to know is first maybe you could just share how many years and hours that you observed the wolves that were reintegrated and sort of put into Yellowstone first because it's it's pretty astounding. How, how many years, how many hours that you, you've observed these beautiful creatures.
0: Okay, yes, let's get into that. So I, I think you know the basic story that wolves were very much a native animal when Yellowstone was established as a national park. But the early rangers, like everyone else in the country in the old days, felt that they were no good So the park rangers exterminated the original Yellowstone population. We eventually realized that was totally wrong. We brought them back in 1995, and I had already started to work here at that
1: time. Rick, when you started there, I'm just curious, in your mind, before 1995, what were you thinking your day you know you were going to be educating people and teaching them but what did you think that your job was really going to be primarily made up before 1995
0: well that's a good good question to get into because that really does bring us back to the beginning of of my own story in Yellowstone <clears throat> so i started in the spring of 94 the year before the reintroduction and i was brought on with the title of wolf interpreter i think i was the only one in the world to have that title because I had already worked with wolves in Alaska at Denali National Park and then also in Glacier National Park in northern Montana. And um, up through that point, my title when I worked for the Park Service was a naturalist, the naturalists of the rangers that do the campfire talks, the children's programs, all those things. So my specialty was communication. And I was brought on to promote and explain the wolf reintroduction program, the proposed program. So the wolves weren't there yet, but all of my programs, all of my talks um, had to do with what we planned to do. And then when I returned in 95, it was a little bit after the wolves had been released and my job switched to being something very different and unexpected. Because we never thought that the Canadian wolves, who were very heavily hunted and trapped, and they had reason to be terrified of human beings, somehow they realized that Yellowstone was a safe place for them. And we began to see them almost every day, particularly one pack known as the Crystal Creek Pack. We were not prepared for that. Myself, for that first summer, my goal was to try to see at least one wolf over the course of the summer. And if I had, I would have been a really happy guy. But I saw the entire six member family of that pack my first full day in the park. So I had to adjust very quickly to this new reality in Yellowstone. And that pack lived in a section of the park, it's just 15 miles from where I am right now talking to you, that had very little visitation because there were no lakes there were no geysers there were no hot springs very few people came up there and it radically changed back then i'm not sure what our visitation was maybe a million and a half visitors a year now it's five million visitors a year and many of them are coming here with the primary goal of seeing wolves my previous career since i had worked with park visitors all the time, every day in my jobs and other national parks, that was fine with me. I was used to being around crowds, used to talking to people, used to helping them. So it was very easy for me to adjust to that. And it's a pretty good deal to have a job where you help people see wolves. So um, I would get out there early in the morning, I would find the wolves, I would have my spotting scope set up. And because I was in a park ranger uniform, and I kind of stood out, Car after car would stop and ask, what are you doing? What are you seeing? And I would invite people to look through the scope. And the reaction was was universal. People were just thrilled, excited beyond belief to be able to see a family of wild walls. So all that was unexpected, we hadn't planned it.
1: So Rick, I find it, well, two things before we move on. One is now, I I read where uh, forget me if forgive me if I get the name, but that originally um, is it Leopold was the one to to who sort of wasn't he a person who was sort of had killed wolves and then rethought yes. this and was he not part of you know kind of bringing this idea to life or making the suggestion.
0: Yes, I'm very pleased that you brought that up because that that is something that really relates well to our story. Aldo Leopold was a uh, wildlife biology professor, but prior to that, he was one of many people involved working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, whose job was to kill off the wolves. Actually, it was the U.S. Forest Service, now that I remember. So he was a wolf exterminator, but he gradually totally converted Mm -hmm. to the opposite side And way back in the 1940s, when wolves were still being killed everywhere, he was the first one to actually suggest reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone. And so um, we honored that part that he played in calling one of the the first packs here the Leopold Pack. So, yes, he had a huge influence on Yellowstone, huge influence.
1: As someone who's involved and has, you know, dedicated themselves to nature and and the animals in nature. Are you ever, does it ever, because it's such a curious thing, like we hunt these animals, but yet the visitation will go five times to witness or get a glimpse of one of these, Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful wolves. What do you, what do you think from where you are what do you think that is in people, this push and pull? It's like, oh, I want to see it. I want to destroy it. I want to see it. I want to destroy it. Like, is, mm-hmm. it, is it the fear of the unknown? I mean, why do, you think, why do you think that is?
0: Boy, that's a big subject to get into, the, the psychology of it. I, I guess the first thought that I have to convey is um, when I'm dealing with visitors in Yellowstone, they're universally extremely pro-wolf. So I, I can't even remember the last time inside the park I had any kind of a conversation with anyone that did not like wolves. Um, however, it is true that the state of Montana, which um, uh, butts up against Yellowstone, they do have they do allow legal wolf hunting. Also, Idaho and Wyoming does as well. That's a, a subject we can get into if if we want to. So outside the park, that is legal. There is a court case now that we're watching very closely that we hope will really um, lower the number of wolves that will be killed um, on the northern border of Yellowstone. That's where I live. But I'll give you a, a quick example. The pack that I mainly study, the Junction Butte pack, I guess it was uh, two years ago, eight members were shot and killed in the Montana hunt. And four of those were pups. The other four were yearlings. So they were um, in a young stage of their life. They didn't understand the danger of leaving the, the park. Um, we feel we've made some progress. Um, and this court case that's um, up for review right now, we're very optimistic that this will greatly limit the number of roles that can be taken. So we, we feel we have the the wind at our back right now. And,
1: and I'm, I'm asking this out of genuine curiosity, just because I... I you know it's like certain animals people hunt cuz they're going to eat them and that to mm-hmm. me has a different like that's a different relationship i never understood you know it's like people hunting a tiger or something where it's just an ornament is a wolf fall under the i mean it basically falls under the category of it's 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 a challenge and an ornament versus there's not really that that other type of relationship where then you know they they honor the animal, they eat, you know, they eat the animal, they sort of mm-hmm. do that part of it. Mm-hmm. Is, is that more it, or it where people, where people are hunting? I mean, cause these are, these animals are anywhere from like a hundred to, I mean, what was the biggest female, like 135 pounds. I mean, these are large, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful animals. Is that mostly mm-hmm. what's happening when people are hunting wolves?
0: Well, I think to define some terms, um, I have many friends who are subsistence hunters. And well, that would mean that you're shooting a deer, you're shooting an elk so that you can feed your family with it. Um, and even more, a higher percentage of my friends in Alaska were in that category. I personally don't hunt myself, but if that's why you're doing it, um, I'm totally okay with that. If you're hunting to, to to feed your family. And essentially that's what wolves do. They're professional predators. Um, they kill to feed their family. The other category would be trophy hunters. So if you shoot a lion in Africa, you're not shooting it to eat it. And if you shoot a wolf in, in Montana, you're not shooting a D. It's essentially a trophy. And, um, uh, it is legal to do that in this state, and the surrounding states, So I'll, I'll say that, um, what we're trying to work on in our end, the, um, the conservationists here is to at least limit the amount of wolf hunting and trapping to the, the bare minimum. So I, I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah. And I, and I know you have to be se- sensitive because if it's like, you're trying to work in, in, you know, in lockstep with people to make it better, you don't, you know, it's not mm-hmm. about criticizing them. I was just curious. So, I do appreciate, though, that I did appreciate that sort of Leopold had this change of heart after killing wolves yes. and then being like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, we shouldn't be killing mm-hmm. them. And so yes. I, I really a- appreciated that. So you started seeing these wolves and uh, how do they reintroduce them? Because you know, what's that process look like? Cause I was fascinated how they have their territories. They, you know, they, mm-hmm. you have, you have these packs that have names and, and, the, and they go on for generations and then sometimes they disperse and new packs are, mm-hmm. are born out of this, but how does mm-hmm. it initially start in 95 introducing mm-hmm. these animals?
0: Sure. it's a good subject to get into. Thanks for asking that. So, no one had ever really done anything exactly like this before so it was uncharted territory but somehow we ended up with a group of men and women that came on board from all sorts of background imaginable and that team worked together and every time a critical decision needed to be made whatever person was in the position to make that decision Somehow, always made exactly the right decision. But just to review briefly what the protocol was, we got an agreement from the Canadians to go first to Alberta in early 1995, and we were able to capture 14 wild walls. Most of them were members of families. We wanted to bring down family groups as much as we could so that they would be used to each other and would want to stick together. Those three packs were each put in separate acclimation pens. The concept was like dogs, wolves have a homing instinct. So let's just say if, if if you have a dog and someone kidnapped your dog, there's a pretty good chance that he or she could find its way home. But if you moved to a new location, And then after a couple of months, your dog was kidnapped. They would probably be able to understand, well, we have a new territory now, so I'll go to the new home. We were concerned that if we just let the wolves out of the back of the truck, they would start to go north toward Canada. And we found from the old records when they were killing the wolves, the highest density was in the very northern section of the park, meaning very close to the border. So if the wolves traveled for just an hour or two, they would have left Yellowstone. They would be long gone and the whole purpose would be wiped out. So the acclimation pens worked out perfectly. The the main pack that I watched in the early years, the Crystal Creek pack, they essentially claimed the area surrounding their release site. And that's the pack that I watched every day the, the first couple of years so it was a very risky decision a lot was riding on that it could have gone wrong but it worked perfectly
1: and i i thought one of the inter- i mean there's so many beautiful and interesting things in your in your books but one of them is is people have to realize these animals can s- smell up to what is it 40 to 50,000 scents <laughs> yes like uh-huh. different types of scents uh-huh. and so yes. the, you uh-huh. know these these animals like this is a you know, it's, that's how they know each other. I mean, that's how they know where they are and things like that. But it's like, I don't think we can even sometimes wrap our head around how well they see and hear and smell. It's, it's, it's mind boggling.
0: Yeah. It's something out of Marvel comics.
1: So (laughs) it really is. So I want to, I want to dive in first to the alpha female wolf book because it made me, it made me feel like you had been studying, you were surprised, you didn't realize you were going to have this opportunity to mm-hmm. have to see these animals from about a half a mile to a mile away. Mm-hmm. Right. Most times, because you're yes. you're giving mm-hmm. that space. You don't want them yes. to be comfortable with you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this book was the culmination of you really having a different understanding about the way that the pack works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And and then having such a beautiful subject in 6 your yes. the wolf. Mm-hmm. This is the, this is the legacy of Yellowstone's 06 is, is the subtitle of your book. So, you know, you have a main character. She's, you know, a very successful pack leader and she comes from a very powerful line of other wolves that, um, what I, I appreciate is people can learn about the other wolves ahead of her, what made you write another book to sort of really dial into how they, their, their pack really runs? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, all, that, all that's really good background uh, information. Um, thank you for bringing that up. My first three books happened to have male wolves as the main character. That was The Rise of Wolf 8, The Reign of Wolf 21, and The Redemption of Wolf 302. Um, so it certainly was time to switch things a little bit. And, um, the main character who we knew is the O6 female, she was born in the year 2006, she was later radio collared and given a number, but by then we were so used to calling her the O6 female. We, we just kind of stuck with that, but just for the record, officially, she was known by the government as well. 832. We knew that, um, The early wolf biologists had been wrong, where they said that the pack is led by the alpha male, and he gets whatever his wishes, whatever his way is, and all the other wolves have to do what he tells them to do, or he'll beat them up. What's a really fascinating aspect of explaining that story is, is that the first person that figured that out was a teenage girl for many generations, pretty much every wolf biologist out there was a, a man, generally a middle-aged guy. And um, a friend of mine, Paul Parquet, um, in the 1970s, he was in charge of a wolf sanctuary. A high school girl named Susan Bregden, uh applied for permission to study the wolves for um, a Uh, an essay contest, I I guess, or maybe a writing assignment for one of her classes. And he agreed. And he asked her to fill out the forms that he normally filled out on the behavior of the, the family of wolves. And then when she finished her time there, she turned in her report and all the forms. And as he was looking it over, he realized that she had really messed up because she was saying that it was the mother wolf the alpha female, that was the true boss of the family. Now, he was a good enough scientist that before he went to her to explain that she had misinterpreted the behavior, he decided just to go out there, spend a few minutes watching the wolf family just to make sure that nothing had changed so he could you'll confirm, no, that's the, the big tough male, that's the boss. But because he had just read her report, and that was fresh in his mind, he realized that he was the one that was wrong for all those years. And that she with fresh eyes and an open mind, she had really figured out the the correct hierarchy. And so I had already known that story and because I had watched Willis in Alaska, I I was familiar with it. And since we have such a, a far greater opportunity to see the behavior in detail, It just is reinforced to us every day who the real boss of the the family is. One way to kind of maybe put this in different language is in military terms, the alpha female is the equivalent of the commanding officer and the alpha male, he would be considered the executive officer, kind of in Star Trek terms where Captain Kirk tells the first officer, make it so. Um... And the reason behind that, the way that I see it, is the alpha female, and and normally she is the mother wolf. She's raising the younger wolf. She gives birth every spring. So she has a lot of responsibilities. She has to plan things out. She has to figure things out. She has to look into the future. She has an agenda. And she needs a certain level of compliance and success from the other members of the pack. So she's the boss, and essentially everybody is working for her. So the alpha male's primary job then is to lead the hunting party when the alpha female is back at the den raising the pups, bring back food for her and the pups, defend the family from grizzly bears, from lions, from rival pack of wolves. So he's kind of the muscle, the, the bodyguard, so to speak, but he's definitely not the boss. He just works for the boss. And in one of my earlier books, I, I write about Wolf Twenty One. He was our undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion of Yellowstone. Literally never lost a fight and would have no problem fighting. Six I love women. twenty-one. He was a great, great guy. And um, but he he knew how life worked. And he absolutely knew that he was not the boss of the operation. It was his longtime companion, female forty-two. So I think the, the males, when they're young, when they're pups, they learn how life works. You might be able to get away with stuff with your father, but not with your mother. So let's just say there's a, a pup that's a little bit bigger than the others, a little bit bigger and stronger, and he's playing too roughly. Then what the mother is going to notice that and is going to come over and just grab that guy in her mouth, yank him up by his back and give him a timeout. So the mothers don't take any guff off of anybody. And they're very decisive. Where the pups can probably get away with a lot of stuff with the adult males, but they know the score. They know who the boss is. And then that just continues through their life. That um, they, uh, by the way, o daughter, 926, was much, much smaller than her mother. And um, yeah. uh, I think the story is also in the book that rival wolves killed her mate. And then they seemed to come for her, four huge male wolves. And during the night when I wasn't able to watch them, she converted the four males that had killed her mate to work for her and made them raise the pups that had been sired by the guy that they had just killed. So that was her power. And they were terrified of her. If they were feeding on a carcass and she came along, they would just back off. They didn't want to have anything to do with displeasing her. And one time, the biggest of all the males, who was by like, probably thirty or forty pounds heavier than her, he didn't get out of her way quickly enough at a carcass, and she just destroyed him. Um, it was really kind of embarrassing to watch. But females are in charge.
1: So, Rick, I want to I want to get into the story a little bit of uh, the Druids and 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 kind of O Six's journey. Um, Mm -hmm. but to your point, there's this, you tell a story in one of your other books and I really encourage people, uh, to check them out. And also you put a lot of beautiful pictures. So I feel like you can even, you can visualize these wolves in these scenarios even more. Um, and, and they're extraordinary, but Mm -hmm. that there was a, you, you told a quick story about 21, this super wolf, this masculine super wolf, who um, had a six one of the most successful kind of unions with forty two, yes. who you describe mm-hmm. as you know this sort of really cooperative and fair um, female wolf. She had a really nasty sister forty who you know killed mm-hmm. the, their own, you know her siblings pups and all these things. But they they sort of reigned supreme and peacefully. They had a lot of uh, pups that survived. Um, mm-hmm. They lived a long time, almost ten years. Um, But you tell a story that they're sort of in this open field and 21, the super male gets up to go in a direction and he does it like eight times, eight or nine times, (laughs) and she doesn't move and no one else in the pack moves. And then she gets up and goes in the opposite direction and everybody goes where she goes. And I think, Uh you know, besides this idea of anticipating like, Hey, where's there going to be food and where would be a safe place to have pups? Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really that strategy um and also I, I wanted I wanted you to and and then we'll go into 06's story there was a few things that I just want people to hear like you said oh and the males will bring her food but they'll often even eat the food like you know pounds 20 pounds of meat and actually yeah. go to her if she's pregnant or has pups and yeah. regurgitate the meat I mean yes. this is mm-hmm. I I didn't know this this is amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that, let's talk about and that and that, that they have cuz about- it's i mean it's amazing and that they have exactly. these different personalities like some packs are really aggressive and ruthless and some are quite nice like superhuman 21 wouldn't kill his opponent in a in a fight like things like this i are it, you made it so human well
0: i think a way to address this is um to take a step back and say that there are no two species in the world that are so similar in social behavior as wolves and humans. And the absolute proof of that is how perfectly the domesticated version of the wolf, the dog, fits into a human family. It's, it's a perfect fit. So wolves are used for millions of years to living in a family, a pack as a family. Uh, most packs of the parents and different generations of, of their young. They're used to cooperating and working together, operating as a team. They do compete with each other for the top position. There are squabbles, there are disagreements and things like that. But in the end, um, they're a family and they work together. And that's exactly how humans involved as well. So it's very understandable how the The domestic version of the the dog, of the wolf, the dog, became such a a valued companion. At first, a work animal for humans, and then a, then a companion. Um, and as everyone knows that's ever had a dog, a dog can look at its human companions and understand our emotions, our um, what we're trying to express to them, and all that comes from the fact that. Um, their wolf ancestors behave very much like like we do. So when, when I talk to people that have never seen wolves in Yellowstone and they start asking questions, I oftentimes tell them that they may not realize it, but they already know a lot about wolf behavior because of their previous experience with dogs. So that's that's why it's so easy for people to, to relate to wild wolves and to understand them because of their background with dogs in their lives.
1: I feel though, and, and you say this in your book, You know, writing these stories. You know, even kind of retiring from that one specific position so that you could tell these stories of the wolves to you know generate that hope to share the stories of these animals. Mm -hmm. But also, you you talk a lot about and write about that. Ultimately, the most successful let's call them families or packs were the ones that kind of were more compassionate. (laughs) And, and in that vein of cooperation and not so ruthless that actually some of the more ruthless packs maybe weren't in the long run as successful.
0: Yes. And that, that's a good lead into the part of O6's story where she had a deal with, um, a very vicious rival. Should we get into that part of the story? The, um, the yes,
1: I want to talk about her.
0: Yeah. Yes. So O6 was a, was a big female by our standards, but she had an enemy that was quite a bit bigger than her and extremely aggressive, very violent. Um, for many generations, there had been a feud between O6's genetic line and another pack that's known as Molly's pack. Ironically, it was um, O6's... Grandmother, Wolf 40, who was also a very violent wolf, that probably led the attack that led to this long term feud between the two families. So her grandmother was um, involved in attacking the original ancestors of the Molly's wolves. They killed the alpha male and all the pups. There were only two survivors. They had to abandon their territory. 06's ancestors stole it from them. But that pack, which became known as Molly's Pack, they thrived in a very remote section of Yellowstone. And maybe because they had such a challenging, difficult life down there, uh, they became the largest wolves in Yellowstone and very aggressive. And the alpha female, many generations later, that was the the rival to 06, she was known as Wolf 686. She was very large. And um, I think I've tabulated that in in her career, she killed a a minimum of nine other wolves. And that included at least one alpha male. So she was a tough, violent girl. We always suspected that she might have been the um, inspiration for Queen Cersei in the... uh, uh, Game of Thrones series or maybe Lady Macbeth <laughs> in that uh, television series as well. Uh, she was out for blood and it's, it's fascinating that, you know, of course she was born generations after the first attack on her ancestors, but there was just something in her makeup that she was out to get o Six's family. And of course, O Six 6 was innocent. She had nothing to do with any of this. And I, I'm sure you read the, the section of the book where, um, 686 one denning season she herself had not gotten pregnant and so she led an assault on 06 den just a few days after 06 had given birth and would you like me to tell that story or would you like to save that for later what happened
1: no i i I want you to to i you're in charge rick i want i'm you're i'm following you i'm just trying to slide little tidbits in that are common knowledge for you that most of us don't know
0: okay well, this is such an exciting story, and since we've already kind of led into it, let me go into it. So um we haven't really talked about the the two mates that O six chose. When I do talks about I love 06, that she has
1: the two brothers.
0: <laughs> when I do talks and O Six. Two things, lovers love she has, say, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Lovers, that's right. And she had many, many lovers before those guys. She was a Disney princess. She was courted by all the biggest and the the best uh, males in the park. And she would have um, brief relationships with them and then dump them. And if they objected to that, she would beat them up and just um, leave them bleeding on the ground. I, I, I always, when I talk about that part of her career... I think of the song by the band Heart called If Looks Could Kill, where the the woman singer is saying to the no good boyfriend, if looks could kill, you'd be lying on the floor saying, please, baby, please don't hurt me no more. And that was 06. If any male, uh, if any boy displeased her, then she would just turn on them and, and beat them up. And we thought that she would never settle down, that she would never have pups, never have a family, um, that she would just be a lone wolf for life. And then when she was middle-aged, she ended up with these two brothers that were less than half her age. Uh, she, in human years, she would be like maybe a, a woman in, in her 40s and they would be like high, high school sophomores. And isn't there a word when you have an older female and a much younger guy? What's that word?
1: Yes, there is the cougar.
0: Okay. Yeah, 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 she invented that. Yes, yes, the cougar. <laughs> and so there was yeah.
1: really well. We and I think in... what I love, what I go ahead. Oh no, what I was going to quickly say though is, oh, and I want you to continue though is that uh, it's seven five four and seven five five, right? The two yeah, brothers. That's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. That yes. uh-huh.
1: one one was more dominant. Seven five five was more dominant, yeah. but seven five four was like always played with the pups, really interact yes. with the pups. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. there was mm-hmm. an interesting that they were, like you said, serving the greater family. That was yes. sort of interesting. Yeah. Anyway,
0: go ahead. Yeah, he, he was the, um, at least on the male side, the biggest and the strongest wolf in the family, but um, he essentially uh, volunteered to be the nanny of the pups. So when the pack traveled, he tried to be last in line so that he would make sure that none of the pups strayed from the path. And he was especially protective of the pups. He loved to play with them. Um, but there were many cases where the pack had to rely on him because he was the strongest and the, and the biggest of the males. So he served this really interesting role in the pack where, uh, you know, in some ways he was like in a Marvel movie, the Incredible Hulk, the, the guy that you would turn to when you really needed strength. But then... Um, At other times, he wanted to be the nanny and be the babysitter. But anyway, getting back to the the story of 06 and her rival, um, I had to talk about the two boyfriends because it just didn't make sense when she first met them and picked them above all the other bigger and stronger and more accomplished males that were dying to pair off with her. But this one particular spring, uh, just a few days after she had her pups, The den where she was located was in a forest. It wasn't too far from the road, so we could watch wolves coming and going, but we couldn't actually see the den, which was originally dug under a tree. Her grandmother was born in that den, by the way, and then 06 found it and and was using it. So we saw her enemy, 686, marching toward the den forest, and she had a party, a raiding party of 17 wolves which was more than twice the number of adults in 06's pack. And 686, uh, we saw her lead her assaulting party directly into that forest where we knew 06 had just had her pups, being that she had not fully recovered yet. So she had the two males on her side and that she had a couple of yearlings pups from the previous year on her side, but it was nothing compared to that attacking force all the wolves were in the trees. We couldn't see what was happening. And then suddenly there was just an explosion of wolves coming out of the trees. And it took me a few moments to realize that the lead wolf was 06. She was running for her life because behind her were 17 wolves, whose intent was to literally tear her apart, led by 686, her enemy. And Because she had just given birth, her ability to run at top speed was extremely limited. And you could see that the 17 wolves were gaining on her. And then I realized that it was even more dire for her than I had first realized because 06 had made a mistake. She was running in a southerly southerly direction, which meant that she was heading toward the top of a cliff, and so at that point, it was almost like watching an Indiana Jones movie where the bad guys are chasing him and he ends up at the top of the cliff. So she was going to have to stop, turn around, and by her by herself fight 17 wolves. And even for 06, she wasn't going to be able to survive that. But I miss I I um I didn't give her enough credit because she didn't stop when she got to the top. Of that cliff she apparently had already scoped out that there was actually a way down that cliff kind of a crevice and with no hesitation she just charged down there at full speed about 35 miles an hour it was loaded with sharp rocks she probably cut up her the pads on her feet but she did that and that saved her life 686 and the other wolves they stopped they were too afraid to run down there So that's how 06 saved her life. But that's not the end of the story because the 17 walls turned around, they followed 06 Centrail, and that was going to lead them directly back to the den. So they were between her and her newborn pups. That meant that now it was totally up to 754 and 755. So her choice of those males to serve her to be heard defenders, now this was the climax. Were they going to be up to the job? I got my telemetry equipment out to check on the signals coming from the radio callers of the two males. It was coming directly from that forest, as was the signals from the attacking wolves. And then for the next hour, we just stood there seeing nothing, but assuming that whatever had happened had already happened. The two males pretty certainly were already dead, along with all of 06's pups. We could see 06 off to our our, uh, west. And then after an hour, all 17 wolves from the attacking party left. I continued to do the telemetry. I continued to get the signals from 754 and 755. But I need to explain something at this point. The wolf radio callers have a component in it, a motion sensor that if there's no motion after a certain amount of time, beeps per minute double. That's called the mortality signal. But it takes four hours for that to kick in, because if a wolf was sleeping for three hours, you don't want to have a false reading. So I kept on checking about every 10 or 15 minutes, and it was always the normal signal, but the four hours were not up. And then it got dark and there was nothing to see. So, reluctantly, I had to go home. I got up early the next morning, drove straight out, and as I was approaching the area while I was driving, I turned on the receiver for the Alpha Male 755 with great fear because, to tell you the truth, I was certain it was going to be the mortality signal. But it wasn't. It was a normal signal. And then his brother was normal, too. And to cut to the quick, we eventually saw that all the adult wolves had survived and all the pups, every one of them. So those two males, by themselves, had held off 17 wolves. They were intent on tearing them apart. So yeah, 06 picked the right guys.
1: When I read your books, I... I can't help but be so curious about the emotional roller coaster for you, and yes. and I appreciate that. I, I know you're studying them, and you write you wrote yes. uh, how many mm-hmm. twelve thousand pages of notes. You've looked yes. at these animals for I don't know hundred thousand hours. It's like, and I understand it's like okay, there's a science element. You're getting information. Yes. But how do you emotionally, and, and and I can tell too, like you sort of like certain wolves more than others. You can just tell like something about if they if they seem more affable or generous, yes. you respond mm-hmm. to that even from your witnessing point. Yes. How did mm-hmm. you emotionally, like that night, did you sleep? Like, how, what do you do with that? Because it's a lot.
0: No, I didn't sleep very well. And I was very nervous when I came out because I was sure that they were all dead. But that's life for wolves. I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but in Yellowstone, um, the most common cause of death for wolves is other wolves killing them. So that's one more ways that they're like people. They fight over territory. They fight over stuff. That's why 06's choice of who is going to protect her family was so critical and why following that story over the years was so fascinating for me.
1: She only had two litters. Um, so it was even, oh, and, and, and females never, oh, she had three, sorry, yes Mm -hmm. but she, but, uh, and also the females never go into menopause. So they, until they die, Mm -hmm. they are having pups. So I I think that's, Mm -hmm. that's another interesting thing, but for you, I, and I know it's the, the life of wolves and you're maybe, and nature is very tough, but I, I just, I really thought a lot about you going through all of these journeys with these animals.
0: Yes, it can be an emotional roller coaster. It is. But I see my function here is I, I don't know why I was the person that ended up in this situation. There's really no logical reason why it was me. My degree is in forestry. There's a lot of people out here that that have PhDs in wolf biology and stuff like that but I was the one that ended up in the middle of this and I I don't understand why, but I um, like to share my experiences and and my knowledge and my stories with people. And so somehow all that came together and I I can't explain why I'm getting close to my 10,000th day um, out in the field, either watching wolves or at least looking for them. And I never get tired of it. I'm I um, ready to go to go to, I'll be getting up tomorrow morning about uh four forty-five, so I can drive about forty-five minutes to where the wolves might be. And this is winter in Yellowstone, so it's pretty cold, and I don't do well in cold temperatures, but I just have to put up with it. Um, so I was given this opportunity. So it's that Latin phrase, Copideum, seize the day, seize the opportunity and that's what I'm trying to do. I, I don't have a logical explanation of why I'm here, but somehow I ended up here. And it's my obligation to bear witness to these stories and to tell us stories so that people can really understand what the lives of wild wolves are like. And my real goal in the long run is to turn around attitudes toward wolves, to turn around people that want to kill them. And I can, I'm happy to say that people have come up to me, for some reason it's always women, and have told me that they bought some extra copies of my early books and they gave it to their male friends who are anti-wolf. And I guess every time they've had a response from those men, they said that it really did change them. And that's what I'm trying to do, change people.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I I did some research and what I love about them is so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law and Ritual really knows how important women are, obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, "Hey, you know does this work, and is it going to be good for these women and not to mention that, what they do is so smart they they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time and energy to really you know navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable, your body can absorb it, I don't know what to do, and it's really gentle on your on your stomach so you don't have to worry about like oh i have an empty stomach or after food or before food they just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that rituals multivitamins are vegan non-gmo project verified gluten and major allergen free they're a certified b corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable don't get me started on a nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're if you interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash gabby. If you wanna start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's Ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L, dot com slash Gabby to get twenty five percent off your first month. When you talk about the cold, you were you 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 shared that there were times that it gets like forty two below 52. I mean, really cold. You're not. I mean, this. Yeah, yeah, I mean. what do you do? Like, do you have any tricks about keeping warm? I mean, besides layers, no. I don't know. At what point is layers not enough?
0: Well, I'm kind of thin, no so I don't have too many fat layers to protect me. So yeah, yeah. If you, there are times where I probably have like twelve layers and I'm still cold. Um, but to be serious, you really have to watch for hypothermia. So if I start to shiver, that's um, a very significant sign and you, you kind of have to deal with the situation. So, um, if I'm out in the cold too long, I have to go back to the car and warm up. Um, most days I have to hike a certain distance to get to the walls or come back. So you can warm up, but it, it is a challenge. And I, I, I guess I'm just willing to pay the price to, um, deal with that, uh, for the privilege of being able to watch the walls. They're actually probably more active in the winter because, um, they have such thick fur, they're impervious to the cold. So they're the exact opposite of me.
1: And a real threat in, is mange. And use you, you yes. s- for yeah. for their, so I thought that was interesting where the, the wolves that have mange, some of them, depending on how severe the mange is, they'd need yes. like 1,700 or something like that more calories to survive. Yes. <laughs> so mange is a, is, besides other wolves, that's a bit of a threat.
0: Yes. um, It mange is caused by mites that drill into the skin and then feed off of blood and tissue. And understandably, like if you had something under your skin, you'd be scratching all the time. And it's the scratching that causes the fur loss. And it's really a horrible thing to witness. It's just terrible, terrible. And what makes it even worse is that it was deliberately spread by human beings. So in one of my books, I write about uh, a historic incident back in Montana in 1903. The state legislature passed a bill that required the state veterinarian to capture wild wolves throughout the state. Let's say from one particular pack, they capture one or two wolves. They take those wolves, put them in a pen with other wolves that have severe cases of mange. They wait until they can certify that the new wolves have um, caught mange due to the mites from the infected walls, And then the veterinarian was required legally to take those two new wolves out of the pen and release them back where their family is so that they can affect the fellow members of their pack. It just is a horrible thing. It, it, it's along the same vein of when the Army was giving the smallpox um infected blankets to Native American. It, it essentially was germ warfare. It's just horrible because of the suffering that it causes.
1: Now that we're we're further down, is are we seeing less mange in in the wolves now? Or is it is it just sort of like a luck of the draw for one animal maybe gets it over another?
0: Well what seems to be the pattern is um the, the mites are in the ecosystem. And um There are times where they increase and times where they decrease. We don't quite understand why that would be. So the infections kind of come and go. Um, I, I think a good point to make on this, though, is we find in general, if a wolf is a member of a pack in good standing, the other wolves will take care of it. They will bring it food they will watch over it. They will protect it from other wolf packs, etc. So if you're a member of a wolf pack and you have a bad case of mange, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to survive and you'll get back to normal. But if you're a lone wolf, it's the exact opposite. So they will um, do what's necessary to care for sick or incapacitated members of the family. One of my favorite stories was um, 21's um, son, 253, who was the the number two male in the family. He was a big, big, strong wolf. And when he was helping his father um, defend the family from a rival pack, he was severely bitten on a leg. And it was so bad that he couldn't travel at all. And so, I, I don't know, a month, six weeks or something like that, he was laid up in a meadow. And the older wolves would uh, carry food from distant carcasses back and drop it off so that he could eat it. And he had spent a lot of time playing with the young pups in the family. And this one particular day, this little pup, uh, he was old enough to travel to a a carcass. And (laughs) I'm laughing because in a way, it was the funniest thing in the world to see, but it was also such an emotional thing he picked up this elk leg and carried it all the way back to his big brother and gave it to him. Uh, It was a struggle for him because the the leg probably weighed more than he did, but he just wouldn't give up. And he was determined to help out his big brother. And that's just another wolf story that, you know, we see all the time here, how bonded they are to each other, how much they care for each other.
1: And they, you know, they hunt. It's interesting because people don't realize like, so a wolf is let I'm you can you you would say it more specifically, but let's say between eighty five and a hundred and what 45, 50 pounds, ish. Maybe a male, a little bit big males could be heavier. Let's say
0: the average weight for an adult wolf is one hundred pounds. Average weight one
1: hundred okay. pounds. Okay, so uh, elk. Mm-hmm. They can they can have to hunt elks that are seven hundred pounds. Yes. Uh-huh. And bison, and occasionally a bison that's two thousand pounds. Yes.
0: Right. Yes. Uh huh.
1: And they have to yes. deal with bears. Yes. And they have to, mm-hmm. and they have to deal with bears that are three fifty yes. and and larger. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I, yeah. and we we talked about the alpha males like doing their job and you know bringing in the muscle, but especially in O case, you talk a lot about what a ferocious hunter. Yes. And she mm-hmm. was and sneaky and and, you know, not backing down and being able to lure bears away from her pups and things like that. So the the females do have a part in a role in that as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. A hunt is essentially um, a team effort by a family of wolves, a team effort. And I've seen pups um, play pretty significant roles in attacking uh, their first fall when they were only about maybe seven months old. So they they want to travel with wow. the adults. They are raring to go. It's just like everyone that has a pet dog. If you look like you're getting ready to go for a walk, your dog would rather die than stay home. Yeah, they want to go with you. So the pups want to do it. And um, this little guy was running for all he was worth. He was biting at the elk. <laughs> he really wasn't accomplishing much, but he kind of understood the the concept. What's fascinating to me, I, I, I said it was a team effort, generally speaking, the fastest members of wolf pack would be the female yearlings they would be the equivalent in a human family to the teenage daughters they're they're thin they're sleek they're the fastest by far so let's just say if you were a wolf and uh, you were a yearling and maybe you had a a sister that was the same age you two would be the fastest ones and let's just say if you were so fast you caught up with the elk your job would be to lunge forward and grab a hind leg and just hold on with your jaws the problem is that the other hind leg of the elk is trying to kick you in the face and they could smash your face uh, by doing that so you're hoping that your sister is going to catch up and if she grabs the other hind leg then both of you are safe Mm. so that's an example of teamwork But all you're doing is acting as a drag. So combined, maybe you're 170 pounds, the two daughters, and that's not enough to keep the elk still. So the other wolves are gonna run in. It could be your father, it could be your mother, it could be your older brother and older sister, but let's say it's the alpha male. Um, His job is also extremely dangerous because he's gonna try to run around to the front of the elk, get in position, and then leap up and grab the throat of the elk. That's the killing bite. Now, uh, even a big wolf is only about, oh, I don't know, maybe 26, 28 inches at the shoulder, maybe the size of a a good-sized German shepherd, where the head of the elk, the neck actually, would be maybe six feet off the ground. So he has to jump as high as he can, turn his jaws to the side, and then grab the throat. When he's attached to the throat, the elk is going to try to smash him against a nearby tree or boulder, shake him off. If he can hold on for about a minute, she's going to die of asphyxiation because she won't be able to breathe. He has about 1,500 pounds of pressure in his jaws. Um, Now, at the same time, other members of the pack are going to be attacking other point, but that's the fatal blow. That's the fastest way to kill him and to stop a counterattack. So that's, I think, the first lesson a young wolf learns that we got to all work together in this or we're not going to be able to feed. It's teamwork. It's a a team effort. And it's just like in any human endeavor, whether it's a football team or people working in a corporation or a podcast staff, the better you can work together. There's a a famous quote in one of my books from a biologist called Brian Here, where he, he talks about how. It's commonly misinterpreted, that the phrase survival of the fittest. Uh, most people interpret that to mean the most aggressive, the strongest are going to survive the, long, uh, the longest. But he said, no, it's really the, the fittest means the most cooperative, especially if you're talking about wolves. So if we go back to the story of the two sisters, 40 and 42, who were as different as could be, 42 eventually prevailed. And she was probably the most effective wolf we've ever had at getting the whole pack to work together for a common goal. I think I, I, I said of her in, 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 in one line of my book that she could have been the the supreme allied commander <laughs> in World War II and may, may have been able to do a better job than Eisenhower did. Her, her gift was organization. And that made, just made life for her May 21 easier. He was the heavyweight champion, but all he had to do was what he was told by his mate, and uh, his life was pretty easy.
1: And when, that, when you when you talk about the, how that shows up in the wolf life, like organization, I know what that looks like in my world. You know, I have mm-hmm. three daughters and a husband and work and everything. Is it knowing that she's picking the right places Yes, to be. Perfect. She's disciplining yes. at the right moment, but not yes. maybe not too severely. Yes. Um, is it is it understanding? Because also, does she set up the dynamic on how, how all the other members of the family relate to one another? Well, let's
0: talk about that. First of all, she, she makes the, by far the most important decision of the year, where to den. If that's a bad decision, probably all the pups are going to die. If it's a good decision, there's going to be a real high survival yeah. rate. And uh, by the time she's had her pups, she will have already trained and organized all the other members of the family. So she would have gone out and hunts with them earlier in the year. Um, she would have already shown them the best places to hunt. If the younger wolves haven't fully learned how to be integrated into a, um, a, a coordinated attack, then she will demonstrate how to do that. So, um, She has to educate all of them and and get them to work together properly to support her when she's indisposed with the pups, uh, to protect her, to feed her particularly. Mm. And she put a lot of time and effort into befriending and supporting all the other members of the family, sharing her food with them, supporting them. Other mothers that had pups, she would help them. So uh, everyone in the family had reason to be, let's say, beholding to her, to owe her favors. And all wolves, all adult wolves love to be around little pups. They love to play with them. And um, I, I think maybe the best way I can explain this, if you think we have time, can I tell the story of what happened when she finally had a deal with her evil sister? Okay, great. Um, yeah, because this is really, I, I think, one of the best stories to really explain how wolves uh, operate what they're capable of so um and I, I do need to condense this story a little bit but she and her sister 40 were exact opposite 40 was extremely violent so violent to the extent that she did something that is a sign of a psychopath two years in a row she killed all of 42's pups and um Forty-two did not have, and that's just to bring attention. So that she forty would have. Is that more just to bring attention her to her
1: pup. pups and resources? Yes, yes,
0: yep. yes, yeah. I I've never actually put it this way, but you could say that she was jealous of her sister, and, and jealous of her sister's pups. She wanted everything for her. Uh, by the way, do you have a sister?
1: I'm an only child, unfortunately.
0: Oh, okay, okay, but you've heard of sisters that don't get along, right? only child. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, That takes it to a whole other level. (laughs) Okay, what can be worse than that? For one sister to kill her sister's pups two years in a row. And there was nothing that 21 could do because he had this um, unbreakable um, rule in his life to never do anything that can harm a female. So he he was he didn't know how to deal with this. He had to rely on 42 to figure it out. So we could see that over the years, 42 was doing a lot of favors for the younger females in the family. She would help them. She would try to protect them from her sister. She We, re- we eventually realized she was building an alliance with the younger females. It all came to a head the third spring. So um, after... Two years of all of her pups being killed, she had pups for a third time, but it was a further distance away from where Forty had her pups. And then late one day, I saw Forty leave her den, travel the five miles to Forty Two's den. She went up into the trees where we knew Forty Two's pups were, and we were sure her den was once more to kill them. But it got dark; we couldn't see anything. So I went home. The next morning. And I got signals from both females. I assumed that the deed had been done and that um, 42's pups had been killed. And a woman ran to me and she was sobbing. And she said, there's an injured wolf by the side of the road and it's bleeding to death. And I thought, oh, it's 40. And she finally fought for her pups, but I- I'm sure she's bleeding to death. So we ran over there. And this wolf was just drenched in blood. She was still breathing, but you could see that her wounds were fatal. But it wasn't 42. It was 40. And she died just a few moments later. And when we did a a necropsy on her, her body was just full of wolf bites. Full of it. Way too many for just one wolf to inflict on her. So to Mm -hmm. us, that was the proof that the Alliance of other females that 42 had built up over the years, that was the payoff. That was the climax of the story. So what I think happened was 40 ran into the den, probably grabbed one of her sister's pups. And maybe for the first time, 40 jumped in to defend the pup. The two sisters were fighting a fight that 42 could not win. Probably she was close to being killed. Mm -hmm. And then her allies came on the scene on her side. And as a team defeated 40, they spared her life. They let her go, but the wounds were too much. And that's only part one of that story. Part two is 21 was desperate a few days later because 42's pups were starving to death. They needed to be nursed and there was nothing he could do about that. So he took the chance of coming over to 42's den, rounded her up, brought her back to 40's den which we thought was a mistake, because why wouldn't you kill all those pups? Because what if they grew up to be her mother, like their mother? But it was the exact opposite. 42 got all the other mother wolves to bring their pups. She brought her pups there, and we eventually were able to count that there were 21 pups at the main den that year. That was the proof that she was not only raising her own pups, but she was raising 40s pups and helping the other mothers with theirs. So she never held all that violence yeah. that had been inflicted on her against 40s pups. And then um, one of those surviving pups became 06's mother. So that's how all the oh, story connects. Mother. Yeah, so there never would have been 06 if it wasn't for that.
1: And Rick, I can't help but... Think when I read your books that I feel like you have a special place in your heart for a wolf that was a male that was the runt of the litter. Na- that was eight, eight. Yes, is that right? Eight run- yeah, didn't. Yeah, sure. So yeah. just to give it to people mm-hmm. in in con- context, so eight was the runt, but he was taken in by nine, who was a female, uh, because her partner had been killed, and he's the one who raised the super wolf twenty one. Who would not kill his uh, his you know opponents? And so mm-hmm. I really get from you. Um, if people want to learn about these other couples, um, eight and nine is a beautiful story, and these these are in some of the earlier books. I just want to um, ask you a few little kind of not technical questions. But when we hear wolves um, howling, I know it's a source of communication. Um, but even if you had an opposing, uh, sort of pack, there would be a way in a time you would howl and they would actually have times that they wouldn't, um, sort of signal their location. Right. Yes, and there are people who study it, mm-hmm. the, the howling. Hmm?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot that we can talk about. And I have, um, Two colleagues, John and Mary Taburge, they're uh, from Canada. We've actually published a paper on howling, but they've told me that wolves can identify other individual wolves by their howling. Just like, um, you know, you have a certain number of friends, and if you get a phone call and one of your friends just starts talking, you'd be able to recognize who they are by the sound of their voice. So wolves can do that. They tell me that it's the harmonics component of the howl. Uh, They can um, figure that out from a distance. So there's a lot of um, functions to howling. It certainly can be used um, to defend your territory. So if you're in your own territory and you hear a rival pack howling at you, then you need to howl back as loud as you possibly can with as many wolves as you can. And hopefully that will cause the other guys to turn around and leave because they don't want to mess with a pack that they've realized is more powerful and numerous than they are. Um, Another purpose of howling is romantic. So like people, wolves don't mate with close relatives. And a normal pack is a family of wolves. So let's just say if you're a a young male, and you've matured, the only females you know are your mothers and your sisters, and nothing's going to happen there. So um, a a young male will leave home, that's called dispersing, and it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet type thing, go oftentimes into enemy territory, just like Romeo did. Um, He risked his life because Juliet's brothers wanted to kill him because he was from the enemy. And so that's a huge risk, but there's also a huge reward because if you go into a rival pack's territory and you howl, and then suddenly after an hour, a cute female runs towards you because she's heard your howl, then that's going to change your life. So um, it's just like anyone that's had a dog when you go to the park, if, you're, if you have a male dog, if he sees a a, a new female... They want to get together and wag their tails. It's pretty much the same with wolves. So hopefully um, they'll be compatible. They'll run off together. The mating season is in February. Um, So that's part one. Part two is to find a vacant territory, and that's hard to do. But if they do, then that's the beginning of a dynasty, like in Game of Thrones. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of initiative. Um, to leave the safety of home and do that. And many wolves don't survive that. Many wolves are killed, but if you succeed, then you've won the lottery. And just like with people, there were some wolves that have very high social intelligence. And I'll, I'll tell you just a quick story. There was a time where there were two rival packs that hated each other and very aggressive to each other. But a male from one pack just strolled right into the enemy. He spent the first day or so avoiding the big alpha male. He went up to the pups one by one, played with them, shared some food, was friendly with them. One by one, went to the female yearlings, made friends with them, went to the older females, made friends with them. Uh, He kind of avoided the big guy, never challenged him, never had a raised tail. If the big guy came toward him, he would tuck his tail and just kind of walk behind the females. And then I think it was by either the second or the third day that the two males were sleeping side by side and they were, they were pals. So somehow he was able to figure out how to fit into that. But I'm sure, you know, people that are just awkwardly social and it's very hard for them to meet new people, to make friends. And there's other people that can do it just naturally. And uh, I, of all things, (laughs) The example I cite is uh, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones. I read his autobiography, and he talked about he was vacationing in Jamaica, and he unknowingly walked into the uh, the bar where all of the, the worst of the worst criminals hung out. And in five minutes, he was getting drunk with all of them. And they became friends for the rest of his life. So he has that social intelligence that male wolf had, too.
1: I could go on and on, but I do want to just... Um get out a couple two, two little other i mean i found so many things fascinating but um we often think of dogs like oh every seven years they're one they're seven they're two they're 14 but really you guys have found that the by the time these animals are a year they're more like a 30 year old and as far as m- a maturity and then it goes it, it goes slower as they get older is that did i did i yeah. get that right yeah he-
0: yeah, hang on for something. I have a little sheet right here. They've um, done some new research on it, and um, yes, the the latest, and I'll just read this off, a a one-year dog or a wild wolf is equivalent to a thirty year old person. A four year old is equivalent to uh, fifty two for a human. And the oldest wolves we've ever had in the wild here get up to be 12. That's very unusual. And that would be pretty much like a 70-year-old person. But it's not fair to compare that with human beings right now. You'd need to compare it to, let's say, our ancestors in the Ice Age, where almost no one got to be 70. Uh, If you got to be middle-aged, you were a pretty lucky man or woman because of lack of modern medicine. And we don't intervene if a wolf um, has um, a broken leg or some other issue. In fact, there was one wolf that um, only had three legs, and she still managed to become an alpha female. She was a, a tough girl.
1: I was. Get, I thought about that too. That it must be hard. Like you go, you think, oh, they're going to the den right now. We could get in there and help help Oh uh, family out, but you you can't intervene. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, I appreciate the commitment, even to to the point of if the wolves get too for weirdly comfortable around people, you guys will make sure that they, you know, will stay away away from people. Um, one last thing that I I just thought was interesting was in the summer months, maybe it's June or July, that you you guys have documented that it can be up to eighty percent or a little bit more of the wolf's diet is blueberries. Hmm.
0: You know, I don't remember that that's the case here. I, I think that is the case in some of the lake states okay. and other parts of Montana. Yeah. But yeah, okay. they they do um, like berries, uh, rose hips, which is kind of a type of berry. Um, I grew up in the East. So uh, back there, we call them blueberries out here. They're called huckleberries. Um, so yes, if they're available, they'll definitely take advantage of that. Yes. Uh-huh. And... Um, they sometimes occasionally eat grass that might be to clear out their digestive system. Um, I'm not sure of the exact reason for that, but you know, dogs do that as well. I, I, I'm pretty picky in what I eat. <laughs> and so uh, I've been writing recently about some of the pretty grungy stuff that I've seen wolves eat because there are anti-wolf people that will say wolves will just kill for fun and never eat anything and then just kill something else and never eat it. Uh, Boy, the wolves here, they're the exact opposite. I've seen them eat the lining of the stomach, which is pretty gross stuff. I've seen them eat intestines. I've seen many wolves pluck the fur off of a hide and then eat the hide. And um, you may have heard that in in situations where humans are starving to death, um, you actually can eat shoe leather. That's essentially animal hide and there's a tiny bit of nutrition for that. So wolves do that pretty frequently. I've seen wolves gnawing bones that are about a year and a half old. So um, they're willing to do what it takes to survive. Um, and maybe that's a mm-hmm. good point to emphasize here. Wolves are survivors. They know how to do that. And that's uh, one yeah. of the reasons I have such great ad- admiration for them. They're, they're going to do whatever it takes to survive and to ensure that their family survives. And um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, 21. Can I tell you what one of my favorite stories of, of him just to finish up? Do we have a little bit more time? Okay. So yeah, you've already mentioned course. yourself. of course. I love 21. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone loves 21. <laughs> he, We talked about how he's undefeated in fights, but never killed a rival. And uh, there was this one time where to protect a pup, one of his pups, from a rival pack, they were charging down at 21 and the pup. And even though he would have been very willing to fight it out with a superior force, he did the correct thing. When the pup ran away due to being afraid, the father wolf ran after him. So technically, 21, you could say, was running away from a battle. But what he was really doing was putting himself between the attacking wolves and the defenseless pup. And it worked; the pup got away, Mm -hmm. but the other wolves caught up with him. I think there were about eight or so, and they attacked him, and they pulled him down. And so we could see 21 on the ground with eight wolves simultaneously biting him. And they kind of rolled just slightly out of our sight, And it was a horrible moment for me because it certainly looked like this is it for 21. And there had been so many times prior to that where he was the savior of the pack. He was the one that ran in to save the other members, 42 and Younger Walls. But what happened that day, 42, was the one that organized the rescue party. She led it. She led the whole Druid pack charging into that location we saw all the enemy wolves flee for their lives with tucked tails chased by 42 and the others, but no 21. Mm. We saw the pup, by the way. So we could see that every member was accounted for except for their alpha male. And it really looked at that time that that was it for 21, but at least he died heroically, successfully saving that pup. Yeah. And then it was maybe an hour later as mm. I was still searching for him, I picked up uh, 42 and the other walls in my scope. She was sleeping all curled up and standing right beside her was 21. He had come back and he was bloody, but he was alive. And that was the day that 42 saved the heavyweight champion of the world.
1: Well, and also, you know, Rick, I want to end on this, but it is the thing that we talk all the the time about. Like, you know, my podcast is really the hope is to sort of find ways for people to be encouraged to do something to support themselves and their health or their well-being or their quality of life whatever that is whatever they need but yes it's that reminder that we we do need that community and and no matter how strong and powerful we are we need we need each other and it's it's so important and it to your to the to the point in your book the the wolves that or the people that probably really genuinely thrive the best are the compassionate are the ones looking out for each other are the, are, are those types. So I, I really appreciated it. And, and, um, I encourage people. So this book we've really focused on is the alpha female wolf, but you, you do have three earlier in the series of this series of books. And, Mm -hmm. um, Rick, is there anything else, any invitation that you'd want to extend to people or a way for them to, um, learn more or support more uh, before Mm -hmm. we let you go? Sure.
0: Yes. Um, We haven't really talked about some of the um, threats against wolves, like hunting past the the park boundary. That's a a big issue, but pretty much all of the major um, nonprofit wildlife organizations are very involved with wolf issues, but I can recommend one local organization. It's called Wolves of the Rockies. Wolves of the Rockies. So if you type that in, their website will come right up and they would be able to give uh, the full story of some of the threats to the wolves in the Yellowstone area, what people can do to help. There are some court cases right now. There are a lot of fights to be fought to help protect and save the wolves, way more than we can really get into right now. So wolves need our help. And uh, I think the more that we have shows like yourselves, thank you very much for for doing this for, for wolves. The more information we can get out, the more true stories we can get out for wolves, the more that people will admire and respect wolves. And um, the more we do that, um, um, the safer wolves are gonna be, the more that they will be understood. And it, it, it always is a dilemma for me to understand how pretty much every human being in the world loves dogs. You could take the most anti-wolf guy in the world and he'll talk to you all day about how great his, his dogs are. And I never understand, well, shouldn't that transfer to the original version of what your dog is? I mean, your dog is here because of wolves. And uh, your dog treats you like you're the leader of the pack. So maybe you should have some respect for its wild ancestors.
1: Absolutely. Well, Rick McIntyre, I really appreciate your time. And I I know you didn't plan it, but I, I'm glad that uh, when the opportunity uh, presented itself that you were willing to dedicate this many years and this many hours uh, to teaching, you know, us all of the things that you logged and, and that you've seen. So thank you.
0: Well, I, I don't know why, but uh, the wolves have gifted me with these stories. And so my job is to re-gift them to other people. So that's my purpose in life.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday, where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.